Hello and welcome to Real World HR, the podcast which is putting the human back into HR. I'm Louise Kennedy, HR expert, chartered CIPD professional and founder of leading HR consultancy Oculus HR. In the Real World HR podcast, we focus on people. And of course, where there's people involved, there's sometimes problems. But we don't shy away from that. We tell the stories we've learned from and explain the processes that have supported the solutions. This episode features HR and occupational health expert John Devitt. John is CEO at Recovery for Life. Recovery for Life are a specialist occupational health service that specialises in complex needs including drugs, alcohol and mental health. John deals with sensitive, complex health and wellbeing issues on a daily basis. He does so with compassion and discretion and believes in the importance of personal enterprise in recovery. On this podcast, John will be sharing more about his experiences of managing substance misuse in the workplace, as well as how we can support mental wellbeing and reduce the stigma attached with both of these topics. Are you ready to step into the real world of HR? So, welcome John. Thanks very much for coming along today. We've known each other for probably about four or five years, I think now, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And we do chat quite often and quite regular about a whole range of different things. So I'm really pleased that you could join um, with me today. Good. So what we're going to do is really just run through who you are, what experience that you've got, and kind of a little bit about the business to start yeah. with. Do you want to do a little bit of that intro yeah, for us? Yeah, of course. Okay, well, so I'm John Devitt. I'm currently CEO and founder of Recovery for Life with some of my partners. I've got a varied background, including international development, where we sort of ran large-scale development projects right across Africa in education, health, various and SME development. I've also worked around, ran a program for Shell, the Shell Livewire program, which was supporting young entrepreneurs to start up their own businesses. And what I found was a lot of the skills that we were helping people develop there are exactly the same as those needed for where people are looking at recovery, be it from substance misuse or mental health or both. And really, it's about developing people. And that's where Recovery for Life came from. Our background is in running, you know, clinically, was in running uh, large-scale treatment services, the clinical services across Sunderland, Stockton, down in Hackney, various other places. And we noticed a gap in the market and really a massive demand, unmet need, within employers about, this would be about 12 years ago, where people were coming to us, employers were coming to us and thinking, well, hang on a minute, I've got this problem with a member of staff who's come unstuck. I really need them in the business. How can I help them best? You had that. You also had people saying, well, hang on, you guys know a bit about drugs and alcohol. And we've been doing drug and alcohol testing, but the testing program's not making any difference. We're just having to sack a lot of people every time somebody fails. Are there any other options? Um, Right through to individuals coming and saying, well, actually, you know, we don't think treatment services would be the right place for our, say, our commercial director or sales director who might come unstuck with alcohol or cocaine or something. Can you help us out directly? So we, we from there, we realised this was a much bigger issue. And although it started primarily with people approaching us around substance misuse and drugs and alcohol in the, in the workplace, actually where you see these issues, really you're also seeing mental health issues. So really, it's technically we'd be seen as dual diagnosis specialists, which is the dual diagnosis of mental health and substance misuse. And what we've seen is, if you look at what's happened in the, for the past years, few years with the pandemic, for example, we've seen a massive increase in these sort of issues coming forward and the level of complexity with the issues uh, being referred to us have massively increased. So, you know, it's it's... Sadly, it's something what, you know, we all take something to make ourselves feel better. And um, we've, we've chat many time about the fact that, you know, if you look at when the pandemic came out, the first thing that happened was in the first quarter of the year, the Northeast, which has specific issues, um, nearly ran out of codeine-based products, for example. And they were talking about rationing it. You then had, if you look at the most popular program in the first lockdown was Great British Bake Off. We we're all baking... Um, to varying degrees of success, I would admit. Uh, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's into um, their sort of cakes and homemade breads and stuff like that. And we also, the alcohol consumption massively rocketed during this phase. And we've all done it. 
um, because you you go to what makes you feel better. If you, you know, when you're, when you're stressed. I think there's so many interesting points of what you've just said there. And I think that's been our touch base points over the last four or five <laughs> years, hasn't it? Definitely. And I think there's so many areas that you help out within businesses. Um, and the ones that you've just mentioned there, I think are, are very, very relevant. And certainly the interactions that we've had between each other have, mm. have probably been pretty eye opening from my point of view, <laughs> even working within HR for as long as what I have. But I think there's been a certain rise and a need certainly for the services that you provide into businesses, because I, I don't necessarily think there is anybody else out there doing what you do from the support element, you know, the connection that you're making between the substance abuse and alcohol um, with mental health and kind of bringing it together and how you can, as a business, take that forward as well. I think there's been so many areas that we've discussed that's made a massive difference. Yeah. And and when I talk about you out there, it, I reference you as a company that saves people's lives. And I think yeah. that's genuinely what you do, would you say? Yeah, I, I, I think it's true. I mean, there's there's two, three points that come out from what you just said there. The first is we cannot find an equivalent to ourselves. I don't so, think there is. is there? We, we, the we can't because we'll do we'll cover anything from sort of more generic counselling, psychotherapy. And we, you know, we have a full clinical team behind us. So, you know, but at the same time, we might do that one component, but at the same time, we might be doing an alcohol or a heroin detox for somebody. It might be that we're dealing with somebody who um, has come and start with gambling or, or overuse of escorts, for example, which is quite a common one. So there's a lot of issues around that coming up, which quite often in terms of services, are provided in a very compartmentalised way. So anything really, if you think about it, because people are fascinating. I mean, I've got the best job in the world, I really do, because you never cease to be surprised by what people either experience, what they get up to, or how they respond to situations. So I think basically it's an interesting one. We've ended up through those sort of links about working with people. You end up doing things like mediations within a workplace. And quite often, you'll find that actually we're brought into a business, really, to sort out a specific issue. So something's happened, a problem's occurred, we come in, sort the problem out, and then we end up reverse engineering with the company to put in places to try and avoid that situation happening again. And I think when you're talking about health and well-being, this is the key. It's about building that infrastructure internally where you don't need us. So you could say our job is to try and make ourselves redundant going forward, but I don't really think there's much risk of that at the I moment. I don't think there is. <laughs> yeah, no, there isn't. But I, I think it, it is. We Sadly, one of the things we've, we've seen a massive increase in, and the second point of coming out of what you said, is that we've seen a massive increase in suicidal ideation. And unfortunately, public services just are too overstretched. And we don't bash public services. Our roots are primary care. Our doctors are primarily GPs with special interests. And the actual statutory service is so stretched that sometimes companies' expectations of what they're going to get if they do have a member of staff or themselves, what they're going to get to support that is really quite limited. But I think a lot of companies don't realise there are other options available for them. I think I think companies can sometimes just get in the habit of, well, actually, that's it's your it's your problem. You need to sort it out as the employee. You need to sort that out yourself and, yes, take some time off work. But actually a company to go above and beyond, which is what some of our clients have done, have gone above and beyond to be able to provide some counselling support, some kind of, um, kind of ongoing help for them, whether they're in work or whether they're out of work, but to be able to provide that as a company – is amazing, isn't it? Because not only do you do that, but you also get the buyback in from the employee afterwards. I mean, we've dealt with, you know, people who've got, you're wondering which one I'm going to say, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> when we've dealt with uh, someone who had uh, OCD, you know, and, yeah. and obviously her buying back now to the business is kind of just unbelievable. She's gone nowhere. She's kind of, she knows that what you've done has helped change her life and she's been able to mm. take it forward. And, and those are the real positive aspects from a company point of view. But I think the companies need to know that there are additional services that are there that don't need to be through the NHS services because you say people go on these waiting lists for two years, don't they? And actually in two years is kind of make or break for somebody, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, see, there's three main drivers why companies work with us. Well, the first will be because genuinely companies, the, the employers want to do the right thing. They want to help somebody who's invest, they want to invest in. 
So it might be that, you know, somebody's worked with them for a very long time, has come and stuck with something, and the company steps in because they need to, either for wanting to get them back to work as quickly as possible and support them, rather than being off for six months or nine months while you're waiting on the waiting list. The second driver can be because it's a, somebody in a key position which the company cannot do without. And we see that quite a lot as well. So, And then you come on to your third one, which is really the most practical one, which is the fact that actually if you look at the job market now, you cannot afford just to lose people. And if you, we always, when we deliver, do deliver quite a lot of training, particularly around these sort of issues. When you're looking at a situation where you might have, if you take politicians, for example, and, you know, there's lots of reported drug use has been amongst sort of different, uh, in the run up to the election when Boris Johnson became sort of leader of the Conservative Party. Half the cabinet were coming forward with stories or stories emerged in the press about previous drug use, be it cannabis or cocaine or whatever. What's interesting is Andrea Leadsom made a very interesting comment. She said in her statement when she was asked about it, she said, oh, well, every MP is entitled to a private life before you become an MP. However, you couldn't do that if you're going to be a 17-year-old apprentice trying to enter an engineering apprenticeship. Now, it's not to say that we should be accepting of drug use or anything like that, but we have to be practical that actually when people fail a drug test, as many do, they're literally thrown on the scrap heap. And so at a time when we've got a shortage, job shortage, and it's really difficult to find people, people have to look in a different way at these things. And the vast majority of people, when they realise the impact of behaviours on how this will affect on their future and the potentially their families and those around them, people actually tend to make the right choice. You'll always get some people, and, you know, the, the, this isn't a soft option. You'll always get some people who just feel that they can, will put the effort into trying to get round a test or try and uh, all the little tricks that people do. The vast majority of them don't work. Yeah. And if you know what you're looking for, you'll mm. always see it. I yeah. mean, think how many cases we've dealt with <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, probably it's a great example, isn't it? So kind of we've we've put in place drug and alcohol testing in, yeah. in uh, one particular business. But that business were or was at the time experiencing real difficulties with their staff, weren't it? It was probably, must be about three years ago, four years. It was certainly pre-COVID, wasn't yeah, it? So it was. maybe it was about three or four years ago. And that business was... It, they were just struggling, weren't they? The kind yeah. of day-to-day, there was problematic staff. There, but they had this huge risk of people driving forklift trucks. They were kind of using <laughs> machinery. You know, day on day, you didn't know who was doing what, yeah. you know, kind of under the influence of drinking and drugs. And we put that system in place, didn't we? We, yeah. we did a drug and alcohol system, but put in a really robust policy, which gives that flexibility yeah. that you're talking about there, isn't it? You know, so it doesn't always have to be kind of the exit points, you know, I mean, several people in that business were exited <laughs> yeah. and we kind of took that decision based upon, you know, the circumstances that it were, mm. that were, that it actually was. Sometimes it needs to be a little bit more black and white, but I think, you know, kind of after that period of time, then sometimes there's a bit more flexibility, but it depends on the business, it depends upon Absolutely. the nature, it depends upon the situation, as you say, with the staffing levels and things. But that policy we put in place, that, that was a very robust policy that allowed the business the flexibility to do what they needed to do, yeah. wasn't it? To be able to, I suppose, in essence, make sure the workplace was a safe place. It was a big health and safety drive in that business, wasn't it? To Absolutely. get us right. And, mm-hmm. and, and to be honest, people will say, oh, but what about safety? Safety comes first. That's the driver for all of this stuff. When you're looking at a drug and alcohol policy, and I would also suggest when you're looking at the impact of mental health, on this, there are major safety issues because one of there's a big trend in health and safety, as you know, around behavioural health and safety as a as a as a concept. But fundamentally, it's flawed because the idea here is the the first sort of starting point is that when people walk through the door at work, everybody's in the same position, everybody's in the same mental state, everybody's thinking in the same way. Not that everybody's somebody might just had a an argument with the husband or the missus or that the kids are playing up or you're worried about your son or daughter who's come unstuck with something, you know. And so the point here is we've the UK's got the best health and safety record globally, pretty much, and yet we still have 
a number of deaths and serious accidents every year. And that has to be down to human error. If you look at the refinements and these developments in, in equipment and in, in sort of processes, there is still a gap. And that is the bit that really we need to focus on. And a part of that is you can't sort, this is not about the employer becoming the, you know, a, a replacement NHS or a replacement sort of family so circle or social functioning sort of support. But it is recognising that what happens outside is going to impact inside. And what you do inside also impacts outside. So actually by creating an environment where you can support health and well-being, and to be honest, we do a lot of work with companies sort of developing health and well-being strategies. But what's really interesting, people are still quite sadly stuck in an idea that health and well-being is about fruit on a Friday and a yoga class once a month. Makes That makes no difference whatsoever. What matters is actually around your starting point is around policies. And it's about understanding how you treat people. Things like bereavement leave. Things like recognising where menopause impacts on the, work, the workplace. These are all things that aren't just going to disappear. This is what people are. Yeah, and that's what makes a difference to people, isn't it? And yeah. In our previous podcast, I'll tell you one that um, a bereavement leave, there have been the people, if a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law or somebody had died, they were allowed two hours unpaid leave um, to be able to take, and they had evidence that with a death certificate. Now that to me doesn't, I mean, other than being quite shocked in the in the course of this training session, trying to close my mouth again, thinking that's just completely unacceptable. Yeah, and yeah. that was kind of, but again, a big buy-in element of it, of, of what needs to take place. But when you just think about policies there, back to that one that we introduced in there, there was three or four that I can remember distinctively that actually we did that amnesty period, didn't we? Mm. And then again, change people's lives, as in these people had smoked cannabis for years and years, yeah. were spending, living on minimum wage, spending four or five hundred pounds a month. You'll have many more of these stories than what mm. I've got, but spending four or five hundred pounds a month on cannabis, him and his wife. Um, and then the amnesty came in and they needed to stop from the business point of view and they stopped. And they were able to have the first, you know, holiday to go abroad. Absolutely. Take the kids away. Yeah. yeah. And somebody else was able to pay for the son's wedding or certainly contribute towards mm. the wedding. And somebody else actually was able to get married because of it. And I just remember those significant points of, well, we've wanted to stop for years, but there's been no trigger point or no reason to. So for all it, at the time when you're putting policy in, it sometimes feels like you're trying to come down. But actually that well-being element of it, yeah. you kind of... And I think when I went back to the MDs to be able to say, actually, this is what difference we've made, that kind of give you that, actually, we are doing the right thing. You know, it is It is about well-being. It is about moving people forward and not just about, you know, needing to make sure they're safe at work. It's the whole life, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think if you look at some of the cases we worked on and we've talked about afterwards and we've seen the positive impact yeah. on the people six, nine months, a year later, when people or you're talking to employers and they're saying... That's a totally different person. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. It. But also by investing in people at that right time and giving the sort of education support, 90% of this is not edu about education and it's about talking to people. So when we do an amnesty period, amnesty periods, if we're talking drugs, are really important because they actually give a point of engagement with people. And you will get them. Sometimes people will contact us and for lots of different reasons we'll turn around and say, but I cannot stop using drugs. And it's not because of addiction. It's because of the social setting or the, I remember one kid who we were working with for one of our clients who was 17 and a lovely lad, nothing wrong with him. And he, we did this amnesty period in this company. And at the end of it, he said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I think that's great what you're doing, but I won't be able to stop smoking weed. And we said, all right, thinking, oh, well, are you struggling with it or something? And he said, no, it's not that. It's just that every Sunday my mum makes a roast dinner, we get all the family around and everybody smokes weed together. And that's the life, that's what they do. And he said, there's no way, I, I don't want to lie to you, but there's no way I'm not going to be able to join in on that. And if I do, it's going to sort of exclude me. Now, that isn't necessarily something, an obvious thing you would ex explain, you know, smoke, smoking spliff with your mum. But, <laughs> but this is why I love this job, because you never get surprised by the, and there was a, re a rationale for what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he, we arranged something else that we've done quite a lot of, 
is that we've arranged what we call a dignified exit for somebody. So quite often it is in best in the best interests of both parties, employer and employee, to part ways. And actually, but sometimes people feel that automatically has to come into a confrontational approach and that automatically is going to end up in some sort of litigation or into tribunal or whatever. And actually quite often when you speak to both parties, quite often as that honest broker piece, you end up realising that actually it's in best part, you, you both need to move on. Yeah, you basically. need to exit from the business, yeah. isn't it? and it's how you do that. And I think quite often what we see is, and we've done quite a few of these recently, is actually in both those cases, it's it sort of frees the employer up who wants to do and support somebody. So sometimes we're brought in if we think if there's an impact of where the exit could severely impact on the individual. So if there's a risk to themselves or to the employee or someone, there's a fear that they might self-harm or hurt themselves more seriously then we can be brought in and we will support through that exit process because it's about really um, what we're about is not addressing the drug issue, the alcohol issue, the mental health issue. It's about helping people find who they want to be, where they want to be. It's about that purpose. In its simplest form, we're sort of the happy people. We're there to try and help people work out what's going to make them happy. And being going to the same job every day, if something, if, if, if it's something you hate, isn't going to be helping your health and well-being. No, and I think sometimes people don't realise there is an option of getting out. Yeah. You don't always have to stay in that job that you don't want to be or the the repetitive cycle uh, that that they feel as though they're in. So I think that's a real positive of being able to take it in that type of way, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And, And people sometimes are just too nervous to actually make that, have that conversation. And I think it is safer to use a third party to do that. So that's an example of the sort of mediation, but it's usually around those sort of issues. Something else we found um, quite happens an awful lot where mediation becomes really important is many of the cases that we've dealt with over the the past few, well, God knows how long now, has been around where there's been conflict with a manager or within a team. And that escalates to a point where somebody then becomes goes off on the sick. And that then turns into a mental health issue. Now, actually, understanding where those team dynamics work, how they work, and being able to intervene at the right point actually can really help avoid that turning into something much more serious, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, it doesn't resolve in all cases. And, but sometimes there's a value in looking at it in that way, even to realise that actually, no, this is not going to resolve itself. So either way, in a way, you can always get an outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just, I think it just makes a big difference around that employer being aware of the employee yeah. and the circumstance that they're in. And I think when you just said there about, you know, everybody, you think that they come in and everyone's on the start and block has been the same place, aren't they, at the day? But actually someone's just gone through something over the course of the weekend or someone's been arguing with somebody or they've got, you know, and we don't, as the employer, always take those things into consideration. You Mm. just expect that they come in, the standards, the expectations, that's what they have to deliver on. And it's kind of a lot of smaller companies that just literally we need to deliver. We don't don't want to do the extras, isn't it? Yeah, I I think sometimes when you talk to people, it's people are so tied into their own track sometimes Mm. That it's not that they're bad people, that they don't, or that they're oh, not no, unkind or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just that actually the focus is so focused on an immediate problem mm-hmm. that they actually missing an opportunity to actually look at actually. Well, we're a small company. This person is with us. They're really good, or could be even better than we are. But actually, there's something in the way. And actually, it's I would suggest quite often. It's a case of remove those barriers, support that person. You're going to get a more a more loyal member of staff, a more motivated member of staff, and you'll see productivity go up. And that's what people tell us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about closing down litigation, um, which we we also do quite a lot of, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah, but from a health, but even from a health and well-being perspective, that sort of conflict doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Because it upsets everybody in the same uh, situation, does. doesn't it? Yeah. 
And if you're struggling with your mental health and you're having to go through, and we have supported people going through these directly, where people are, because we have a private practice as well, where people come directly to us, where we have, you know, people have said, this has happened, they might have a really good point, etc. Actually, a negotiated settlement has, where we've got involved has been much more better for their mental health than anything else because actually it takes a lot of energy to do these things. So, you know, following almost like, a, a, you know, a mental health for ACAS approach is a better way of looking at it. Yeah, from a mental health aspect. From mental it, health, it? definitely, yeah. yeah. And I think it's so hard. I'm just thinking about one of our um, situations got at the moment where people go go off sick um, and then won't engage you know, they won't come along for a meeting, they won't discuss the well-being, they won't do occupational health, they won't do GP reports. So you kind of, it's so difficult as the employer at that point to kind of know what the right thing to do is. And people, again, get themselves in a bit of a frustrated situation and, you know, kind of want to exit somebody straight away and kind of move them on. And actually, I mean, there is only so much that you can do, though, isn't there? You know, yeah. where there's kind of that pushing element. I think actually I've got two or three at the moment where <laughs> where you're kind of trying to say, well, you know, just get in touch and, you know, just have a conversation. Or do you want to see an occupational health person instead? And those, they're really difficult situations to be able to deal with because but you've lost them, really, haven't you? And you can't, you, you struggle to be able to get them back in, don't you? Yeah, you can do. I, I think it's interesting because there's no easy, none of these things are easy. I think that sometimes having an independent party coming in to have that conversation. So when people approach us, there's two routes that we go down. And usually people will say, because we do mainstream occupational health, and in fact we don't really, as you know, we don't really advertise our services. Virtually everything comes to us by referral. Um, so one day we're going to have to pretend to be a real company and sort of start um, being grown-ups. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, actually, you know, we've been – and we are, you know, as you know, we've got national contracts and we're quite big corporates. But what's interesting is when you look at a situation where somebody won't engage, all right, that's the time to bring in a third party. Because then what if – as a minimum – what you've got is evidence that you've tried to engage with that individual. Now, the bottom line, and this might sound really harsh, you know, you know I'm not unkind or anything like that. Right? However, there's only so far you can go with this. And that's, at the end of the day, we're there for employers. All right. We're there to, and there's an ethics piece here. Both parties have to absolutely trust that we have their best interests at heart. But at the end of the day, if somebody isn't engaging in that process, you can only go off the information that's in front of you. And the idea of, uh, I, I get quite frustrated, so where we're brought in and somebody's been on sick for two years. We had one recently. It's unbelievable right. that, that people leave them crazy. for that long, isn't it? For yeah. two years because, and to be fair, and I won't mention the company, we, we're not here to trash other providers, but their health provider had seen this person pretty much every three, six months for that I'm thinking of. And it was a difficult case. The guy had traumatic brain injury. Luckily, well, we've got specialists who deal with brain injury, stroke, things like that, right? But this had basically just kicked the can down the road every three months with a review. There was no impact. There was no intention. There was no nothing to help to identify how do we get this person back to work or do we draw a line under it and say, actually, capability has to apply here because this person isn't capable of returning given the injuries he's had, yeah. right? Now, the point here is you can't not make a judgment on these things. You have to get it to a stage where you can. And unfortunately, if somebody won't engage and will not speak to people, etc., then that to me is, you know, you have to go with the policies. Yeah, you have to make decisions based you upon do. it, isn't it? And especially when the company's trying to help. You know, exactly. When, when they're offering support, things like yeah. occupational health. And that's not always just at the point of bringing someone back into work to talk about reasonable adjustments. Yeah. It can be, you know, kind of support services that are available to them external to that or kind of, you know, the type exactly. of support services that you provide. Mm. You know, it's, it's trying to get that engagement with people. So, you know, and it could be across any any sector, couldn't it? any any particular 
type of, you know, mental health or kind oh, yeah. of illness or as you say, injury, be, anything yeah. like that. And I think it's just so difficult. Obviously, that's the, the element of us kind of coming up with, right, okay, this is where we're at. What decision are you going to take as the employer yeah. and given the options available to them at that point? But I, but I think it's difficult. It, it is difficult for the employer to make those decisions, isn't it? It, it is because quite often, actually, I find most pl- employers are decent and want to try and do the best for their people. But the onus is also on the employee. If you're really struggling, all right, then you need to be getting that getting help from somewhere. Sitting at home, as many people do, for three, six months, nine months, if that's not the point and you're being offered, if you cannot get through into be it statutory services or whatever it might be, if you're being offered help, there is an onus on you to accept it. Yeah. And sometimes I totally get it. We do see it that people aren't able to accept things in certain conditions, but the vast majority are. And a lot of this comes down to the skills of the clinicians who they're talking to. But so if you're looking at, uh, we're quite lucky in a way, we come from dealing with very, very complex cases. And we're dealing with, uh, because we've got a background really in sort of medicine that's working in the poorer areas, shall we say, where you've got very complex and social social needs, basically. To be honest, it's very rare that we come across a case within a workplace that is of that sort of level of complexity. Yeah. Is that because they're they're functioning and they're doing the day-to-day? Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're fully functioning, but work personally, and, Mm. you know, clues in the name, we're a recovery organisation, Recovery for Life is that work is probably the main factor and a stabilizing factor in people's lives. Even if you hate your job some days, you know, even if you go home and you think, oh, that bugger over there, did you know, and my manager's this, that, and the other. It gives a sense of purpose. It gives an income, generally. It gives a social interaction with other people on a daily basis. And the biggest problems we see, particularly for mental health, isn't actually sitting at home really isn't usually the the best thing for people. Yeah. You might need a break, but when it starts getting into two months, three months and plus, then actually you've really got to ask what the impact of that isolation is having away from that workplace. And getting people back into work is much harder the longer it takes. Yeah. So quite often it, it's weird from our tradition, our sort of more traditional standard occupational health or sort of physical, you know, suddenly has an injury or an operation or something. Quite often, it's an interesting corollary, quite often people with those physical injuries quite often come back to work slightly too soon. Yeah, because they're keen and they want to but be there. They want to get they, back, yeah, want right? To get back. And actually, the longer they're it's getting the balance right, because the longer we're off, if you have a physical injury or if you're ill or something like that, it will bring your mood down. It affects your mood. The sooner you can get back up and running, the better. So that's one of the drives why people quite often are keen to get back, sometimes a little bit too soon. Yeah. The second one is the the corollary is people with mental health conditions are quite often just sort of waiting for appointments. And when you're just sitting there at home, actually, you'd probably be better in work and around people who can help you maintain that routine. Mm-hmm. So the corollary is that we find a lot of people with the mental health issues are staying off too long, and the ones with physical in- injuries aren't staying off long enough, yeah. basically. And it's difficult. I think, you know, people go to the, the GP without obviously kind of, you know, criticising any of the services that provide, but they go to the GP and it's probably quite simple to them to say, I mean, we've, we've had sick notes or fit for work notes that have just been done online or they've just been done over the telephone and they're not getting that real review or assessment. Oh, no, I don't feel great. I'm still in the same situation. And then, as you say, they're just left. And the, a big element of this is loneliness, isn't it? You know, if yeah. people are either living alone or they're living with somebody who's working and, you know, they, they become very lonely and quite insulated, really. Insulated? Isolated? Isolated, yeah. I think we'll go for. Um, go quite isolated. <laughs> but the door, they then lose the confidence to be able to step out. And certainly after COVID, we came across that quite a few times of people in businesses or people in the workplace who had been at home for a year and a half and then they had to go back to work and the the struggle of trying to get people back into work and convince them to get back and, you know, the staged or the phased return back. And it was really, really difficult. And I think a big element of that was mental health and loneliness, wasn't it? And people not... and isolation. Yeah, and not knowing how to interact with other people again. And fear. 
Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I think what we're seeing, um, and interesting, there's a comparable situation with the states because we're, as you know, we're currently in the process of looking at setting up our services in on the East Coast in Pennsylvania, very similar area to the Northeast with the Rust Belt, etc. But what we're also seeing coming out of, if you look at the cost of living rises, if you look at the fuel costs, if you look at, uh, I noticed that the backtrack today on the 45p um tax cut but interestingly what's what you've also seen there is that the emergence in the uk when um, unemployment sat its lowest level okay but we are seeing the emergence of the working poor and as a class as a as a strata where people are not able to pay for things even though they might be working and i think this is a really directly comparable with the us where the the whole substrata of the working poor is a massive issue where you've got people who are working every day but might be sleeping in cars because they've lost their mortgage right where people can't afford having to take second and third jobs because over there because they haven't got a health service and they're having to pay for insulin so what you're seeing is an equivalent level, not quite on the health side there, because thank God we've got an NHS here, but actually you're seeing an emergence of people who cannot afford to live. And there was a very interesting article um, that appeared, I've forgotten the psychologist who wrote it, but I had to agree with much of what the article said, which was we're in certain areas that... The idea of, if you take CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, it, the whole principle is about how you can reframe your thinking around a situation and can apply different techniques to manage situations as it comes through. Okay. And the article was a really interesting one because that's the primary response you'll get uh, referred to if you go to talking therapies or to most um, sort of statutory services. It will be a CBT approach. But that doesn't fundamentally change a situation for somebody if they can't pay, uh, you know, afford to put the heating on or if they're worried about their parents. Now, there's only so much you can reframe things. We're getting into a stage where actually there is a panic building around the fact of how are we going to live. So if you're a third of your income is taken up on a fuel bill, how's your, and your mortgage increases are coming, how are you going to manage that? Yeah. So that plus coming straight out of the, the uh, pandemic where we've dealt with isolation, grief, Grief and the how we approach bereavement is a massive issue at the moment. And if you look at the sort of with Queen Elizabeth dying, if you look at how the nation responded to that, where we are embedded in grief constantly, plus all these other layers, these are not good conditions for people's mental health yeah. or well-being. So I think the it, it's going to put, it's not saying that employers should somehow be picking all this up. But there is a really important thing that actually when you're looking at health and well-being in the workplace, these are the issues people are going to be coming to work with. It's not about, as I said, fruit and a Friday and a yoga session. Yeah, yeah. Uh, extra nice to have, but actually there's there's a lot deep-rooted for a yeah, lot of people, isn't there? It as, is. And especially if they're working on minimum wage jobs. I think it makes it an even bigger impact, isn't it? Yeah, it does. So probably one of the things I was thinking about, and again, we've had regular conversations about, um, is around kind of a rise around people coming into work, having consumed alcohol and still being under the influence, or most recently for uh, our conversations of people who have been under the influence, who have been drinking at work. From our conversations, you said that that's kind of a, that's pretty much standard. That's what's happening across the board now in different areas. And it is. And I, and I think the thing here is it's, it's, you know, the old sort of, they used to have sort of tattoos on your knuckles with love on one fist and hate on the other. This is really what your drug and alcohol policy should have. (laughs) Weird way of thinking about it. Your love is here's an amnesty period. If you're struggling, come and talk to us. Right. We'll get you the support. We can direct you into the right services. doesn't have to cost a loss to, to the employer. It could be a routing into a certain period in, uh, sorry, into a certain service and making sure that you're functioning and not drinking at work. Right. So there's things you can do that. The other side, though, is if you don't ask for help, if you don't 
sort of follow those rules. Safety has to come first. And that's where the other fist comes in, because actually you haven't got a leg to stand on. But I think the key thing, and it's something you touched on, we've talked a lot about this in the past, it's around having the flexibility in your process and your procedures and your policy that actually you don't aren't forced to make a judgment you're not comfortable with. Yeah. And yeah. you've got to know it's the right thing for absolutely. that employee. But also as and you, as a right business. And that situation, absolutely. Yeah. Because a business be- needs to protect themselves as yeah. well and also their other employees that are, you know, potentially aware yeah. of what takes place as well, isn't it? It is. And also we've got to, I mean, I've, 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 sometimes we don't work, as you know, we don't work with everybody, mm-hmm. all right? And I know this sounds sort of commercial a little bit bonkers, but sometimes you'll sit with an employer. And I've, I've sat with um, some directors once who were saying, for example, oh, I'd, I don't care if, um, you know, the, the lads are smoking weed at the weekend. What they do at the weekend is up to them. Well, if you look at the impact of what drugs have on your mental state, and when particularly when you're coming down, right? So if you're coming up, go high on cocaine, when you're coming down, you hit, you go very low. So just, you know, talk to anybody who's been around somebody who's coming down from coke. That's what you're seeing in the workplace on a Monday morning. Because right. that's in your system for a couple of days, it, isn't it? It is, yeah. and it's the come down. So your brain chemistry gets altered. The best way of thinking about when you take any drug whatsoever is to take cannabis or cocaine. It's not the cannabis or the cocaine that makes you high, which sounds really odd. It's the chemical reaction between the THC or the active chemicals in cocaine that have a chemical reaction with your own brain chemistry. That creates the, the high, but then drugs wear off. But your brain chemistry is left flying up high, basically, and that's when the come down comes. Right. That will take at least seven to ten days, if not longer, depending on what you're using, to settle your brain chemistry. So when you're actually looking at it from that perspective, and people say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if they're using a bit of Coke. It does, because what state are they going to be as they come down? Now, I think the key thing here is, that when you're looking at it from a pers- an employer's perspective, if you have people driving company vehicles and you know they've been you know, off, off the bonds on whatever and it doesn't bother you, it will do if somebody gets hurt and it comes out that you were aware. Yeah. So the, the, the whole point, the courts are so much more vigilant, shall we say, on around corporate manslaughter and things like this, and around the role of directors ensuring that their workplaces are safe. So when you then have anything that impacts it directly on the public, actually, whether you care whether they use drugs or not, in a personal perspective, you really should do it as, a, as an employer. Yeah. I remember one of the ones that we, the guy did, we, he was dismissed actually, and he'd been doing speed. And um, it was one of our late night sessions that we did until like yeah, two we, o'clock in the morning or something somewhere. And he he was caught that particular night and obviously he was sent off for the, the test to come back and he had a high level of speed. And I think he admitted he'd been using it every day for, say, eight years. Yeah. And the business weren't aware of it. But then, obviously, he was dismissed from the business from the risk element of it. He had no intention of stop and didn't throw the amnesty. And he went to work in another business and we later found out that he'd had a serious accident in the other mm-hmm. business and injured somebody else, not himself, but injured somebody else. And there was an element of, you know, that's that could have been this business, you know, Absolutely. that risk could have been there. And actually, again, it validates why you're putting policy and process in place to ensure the safety of, you know, in that situation, yeah. and the rest of the workforce as well, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I, and I was t- I was testing somebody because I, I'm a very bad chief exec. I like to get my hands dirty still and um, go out and play with wee wee and things like that, which is, uh, you know, when you're doing drug testing. But what was really interesting, the reason I like doing it is because the information you find. And A, you get a really good feel for a culture, for a company when you first age. But it's amazing what people will tell you if you sort of act in a certain way and ask questions in a certain way. And I remember there was a lad, a nice fella, um, who failed the drugs test. It was non-neg. He was was a new entry. He was, I mean, I'd say he's in his 30s. And he was uh, just joined as an agency. So your risks are always going to be through agency, they're going to be through your night shifts and your things like certain profession like forklift drivers. So forklifts, because they're the main claim that 
companies go for for insurance. Yeah. Okay, it's mostly it's mostly um, uh, around claims around injuries through forklifts or they've damaged them or whatever. Now, what was interesting when I was speaking to this guy who was going to be a forklift driver, obviously he failed. He wasn't going to be employed by this place. And what was quite interesting was he wasn't bothered in the slightest that he'd failed this. And when I, was, I was chatting to him, I said, so what will you do now? And he said, oh, I'll just go back to the agency and I'll just I'll be placed somewhere else. And it was an interesting one. It wasn't just that. When I, I won't say the supply chain because it would, but you can think of one of the main supply chains in the Northeast. Every single company you could think of, this guy had worked with in the past 10 years. Right. So you just right. move through the company. It literally did. Every single one in a whole supply chain. And actually, if you looked at it, you would think, and, and I had to ask, so have you ever not been tested before? Oh, no, no, nobody's really bothered. Or if you do, oh, well, you just, you just disappear for a bit and then you come back and the people have gone. And one of the interesting things with drug and alcohol testing, when you're doing random testing, as done by many, and again, it's not trashing other providers, but it's just, it, it's, it's a slightly myopic way of looking at things, is a lot of people won't do, they'll only do drug and alcohol testing nine to five, Monday to Friday. Well, that's not when your risk is. Yeah. <laughs> you it's know. not catching all of the people, isn't it? That's what yeah. we've experienced before. Absolutely. Like long distance lorry drivers yeah. coming back, being there, being on night shift. Absolutely. Being done night shift together. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we have. Yeah. We've done a few nights together there. Yeah. Though. So, yeah. but those type of things that, yeah. that make that make and a difference because the people assume you're going to do nine till five. They don't expect it to be there at six in the morning or midnight either to be able to do some testing. Yeah, absolutely. So when you do rock up, it's an interesting one. You get fewer people. Uh, I mean, it's a, another thing is it's, it's the timing of the test is really important. The other type is is the medium you use. So frankly, there's, um, you know, mo many people like prefer the idea of saliva testing because somehow it's less invasive than playing with wee wee, basically. But the reality here is a, a saliva test will only show you a 48-hour period. Right. So if you're testing somebody on a Wednesday, Thursday and they've been doing something at the weekend, their mental health might be affected, but you're not going to get it in that test. So one of the key things, and it was an interesting discussion, I was at the International Federation for Drug and Alcohol Testing Conference in Austria last week, and the uh, actually the week before, and it was a really interesting conversation about what the purpose of the testing is. And actually, it's an interesting that quite a number of employers, internationally this was, because particularly in states where there's some class action suits being taken place around cannabis in particular, actually people don't want to know. And it's sort of missing the whole health and well-being impact on actually you will have a healthier workforce, fewer accidents, less absenteeism, if you can drive less bullying. Yeah. You know, less sort of uh, acquisitive theft if you can address these issues. So the idea of, well, actually, we only want to know what they did midweek. And really, that's just keeping insurers happy. Well, look what your claims are. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really make much sense. It's a chop logic. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, you know, testing nine to five, Monday to Friday, when you only are going to do saliva testing, really is the really much point. Yeah, it makes a difference on when you're doing it and a, a just a different perspective to be able to put into it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Just thinking around uh, mental health, obviously, is such a big topic and it's something that's spoke about so often in all different sectors, obviously, uh, with what I do, obviously going into different businesses, the experiences that people have had, but kind of within personal situations as well, people talk about it. Do you still think that there's a stigma that's involved with mental health, you know, about what people want to say, what they want to share? whether people openly come forward, whether there's, a, there's an age relation that goes with that, you know, uh, younger people seem very freely able to say, yep, I've got this, I've got that. Older people, I don't know which category I'm putting older in. <laughs> maybe he's a bit older than me, 50 plus. Um, but maybe it's kind of, you know, do, do older people still struggle with that? You know, it, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts around the stigma? I think there is, so there's been massive leaps forward in reducing stigma in the workplace. So if you look at campaigns I've been running, things like Mates in Mind in the construction industry and programs like that, they have, they've been running for quite a few years. I think the pandemic has helped as well to reduce stigma around 
deteriorating mental health. But I, I think there's still some work to be done. But I mean, we have to bite the bullet and recognise some people, and we still hear it, people will turn around and say, oh, well, I don't believe in mental health. They do when they, it then impacts on them. Yeah. But up till somebody experiences it, it was the same with COVID. People will say, oh, well, I, I don't know anybody who's died from COVID. Well, I'm glad you don't. But lots of people do. Yeah. And I think the, the, the point with stigma is an interesting one because there's two sides to it. First is the awareness that people might be struggling and it's seeing people as people. The other side, I think there's still some work to done. So uh, to do. So Mind, for example, are a great organisation that do a lot of really good work, a lot of re really good research. But one of the studies, one of the sort of facts quite often rolled out on programs like mental health first aid programs and things like this are that, for example, that one in four people will have a mental health problem during their life. Well, if you think just logically about that, that's complete nonsense. At some stage, everyone will. Okay. All right. All you need to do is experience the breakup of a relationship, the loss of a child, loss of a parent, you know, loss of a job a sense of, you know, all these life experiences that make us human, uh, that's going to cause some deterioration at some stage, all right? And if it doesn't, then you're into your sort of Trump narcissistic personality disorder where nothing's going to impact on you, okay? So I think the, the issue around stigma is really important because it's not just that people aren't aware of it, or condemning it, it's also about what we really think about it. So it's about, you know, it's recognising that this is something has to affect all, all of us and will affect all of us at some stage. Do you think that men struggle to come forward? I've got a reason I'm asking you this. Do you think men struggle to come forward as opposed to women? I think it's both. It depends on who the people are, where they're coming from. Women are better, generally speaking, at coping with things okay. in in these sort of situations because the much women tend to be much more uh, in touch with their own bodies, their own feelings, and then and responsible for the feelings of other people in traditional households. Okay. So being your kids or whatever, you know, it's mum who will sort stuff out. Now that's that sort of gender bias is still there in particularly in many working communities that you've got there. Men are becoming more aware of it, I think. I think depending on what industry you work in, where you work in and what sort of socioeconomic group you come from, um, then there are some differences. But also what you'll see is how people cope with it yeah. differently. So one of the biggest challenges, I think, for employers is where you've got contractors working away from home primarily male, and what do contractors do when they're away from home? They drink, they take drugs, and, and they become very isolated. So actually, it's it, it, all your, what you've got is a situation compounding it. But actually, I, I think it says an awful lot that more women attempt suicide than men, but more men actually succeed in taking their own lives. Right. Okay? And that's a really interesting... It is a very interesting position, really, isn't it? I think I was just thinking we were out for dinner and another couple joined us a few weeks ago. And um, actually, the, the group of us have all started doing a, a boot camp over a period of time. So it's all kind of six o'clock in the morning. And for me, looking at this group um, of all different people, it's about 75 people turn up. You know, it's on the beach. It's, it, you know, it's a great setting to be able to do it. But actually, there's obviously been a group of men, mainly, who have obviously been quite isolated, who um, yeah. I think one person admitted that they tried to commit suicide last year. But they've obviously been really needing and wanting something, you know, and actually they've got together in this group and formed a little, you know, group of, of men. And one of them was at the table with us and he'd made a comment about, well, he, somebody else actually asks how I am, you know, like, oh, how are you? Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. No, I'm actually asking, how are you? How are you? And he says, I thought, actually, nobody's asked me that for who knows how long. Yeah. And actually, do you know what? I'm I'm not all right. You know, and it was that moment of kind of like, oh, actually, people don't ask, do they? People no. say, are you all right, John? You know, everything's okay. And you kind of like, you quite flippantly say, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. And you move on, don't you? Because the expectations that is to cope, isn't it? You know, yeah. like to crack on and to do things. But actually, you know, for someone in that guy's situation to be able to then say, 
yeah. you know, are you all right? And he's like, actually, no, I'm not, you know. And, and I think it was reflected upon this group from the boot camp that's there that actually some of these guys have really, they've been lonely, they haven't yeah. known who to speak to. And they turn up and they do these sessions twice a day and they're kind of, you know, for all the getting fit and the mental health element of it's been really good, you know, from them, from a fitness point of view, I think it's really, really helped. But they've also formed these friendships that they can actually take forward and they're now going out, they're socialising together, they yeah. kind of, they've developed something different and actually kind of thinking, probably because I know you and you tell me all this, <laughs> all this information, it's really interesting to be able to watch kind of how that it, makes a difference to people and and the fact that they've stepped out there to do something different and start changing lives again, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head. When, when people say, when generally speaking, when people say, how are you? And the answer is fine. Well, we have a different definition, so I won't use the first word. I've heard that, but somebody <laughs> said that to someone the other day, and I was like, no, you don't say fine, you say good, or oh, not great, well, fine's not the word. <laughs> no, fi fine to us means a certain word and then incapable of normal expression, mm -hmm. yeah. right? So F-I-N-E means something else to us. And what that really means is exactly what you said. It's about that connection and genuine connection. So there's some fabulous programs that have been run by some of the football clubs and by the rugby clubs, for example, yeah. getting older men, right, I would suggest, um, you know, back into a sport or a where it's it's not really competitive, but it's also like helping lose weight, help or and really the the real value is around mental health. But using if you can improve the physique and physical side, you'll improve the mental health. If you improve the mental health, you'll improve physical. Okay, so I think there are some really good programs, and I've known people who have said what got me right. I couldn't sat sit down and talk to a therapist, but. I go and play rugby, it's touch rugby, I'm knackered at the end of it, I've built up a squirt, and then we go and have a, a chat in the bar. Yeah. And it's, but we don't drink alcohol, mm -hmm. or we're all on trying to lose weight and there's a bit of a competitive element around, um, when, you know, how much weight we lost that week, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. So it, it, it really does make a difference. But I think all of this highlights the point of actually, if you want to help people, and to be well, the bottom line is we are social animals yeah. and connection is the most important thing. So do you think there's certain points of kind of awareness that people should look out for, whether you're whether it's an employee situation or whether it's a friend situation or people that you, you're regularly in contact with, you know, yeah. not necessarily friends. But do you think there's kind of certain things that people should look out for? And I know this is very kind of generalised, you know, and um, but it's the things that people could relate to. I think actually somebody needs some help or some support yeah. and kind of what, what's your kind of thoughts around that? Element? Okay, so there, there's two ways of looking at this. The, the first is around your more social generic family type thing. You will know, so a good example is you'll know if somebody you are close to isn't their usual self, all right? So the example you use that somebody gave me was I can walk in at home uh, walk through the door and I'll, my wife will have her back to me and I know I'm in trouble before I've even said a, said a word. Nothing said, right? So those, and that's just one example of where your gut instincts knows that something's not quite right, okay? Now that works particularly if you've got people who you're close to and you know what, what they're like. In a workplace, there's also, interestingly, from a clinical perspective, of a definition of a deteriorating mental health, be it anxiety, depression, or whatever, is really about monitoring the change in behavior, usually over a two-week period. So somebody's consistently, we all have up and bad days, okay, uh, up and down bad days, uh, or good days. And you probably, uh, you know the concept of the stress vulnerability model with you have a bucket, and everybody, you know, the bucket's all different and you get out of bed in the morning, you stub your toe, some water goes in the bucket. Somebody cuts you up on the road driving to work, more water goes in the bucket. So by the time you reach work, your bucket's nearly full and then somebody gives you something that doesn't go down, either a, a short-minute request, I need this by X time, or somebody as simple just doesn't say hello to you when you've acknowledged them in some way and the bucket overspills and something happens yeah. right it's those sort of scenarios when you can generally speaking when you talk to people 
and something's happened or somebody's, you know, sort of smashed something up or there's been a big row or there's somebody said, well, actually, I don't know what that caused that. People will have seen that building up on there. We all have those buckets. So the first thing is to be aware of your own bucket and how full it's getting and not just to ignore it and try and sort of in a blase way just sort of drive through it. The second is around looking at the people around you. If you notice a change over a two-week period, that's really the thing that you need to look at. So somebody's really bright and bubbly normally, you see them go downhill. Physical appearance, when people start not looking after themselves, when they start wearing, you know, you see dirty clothes coming in, unwashed, uncombed hair. You can say that's me anyway, you know, but it's different. So it's not about the, you're looking for change. And it's when it's a change over a over a period which isn't then reverting back yeah so it's not the odd up it's and down like day yeah, yeah it just... it's about there's something here yeah and it's really as simple as about engagement and just asking questions you know it's that are you okay mm-hmm. you know and, uh, and, and, it, and not being frightened to say well, you don't seem there yeah and that and from that company well-being point of view, they are in, in you know, they are able to do that at any point that they want, isn't yeah, it? You know, if somebody is genuinely concerned, speak to somebody's manager, speak to the employer who owns the business, whoever it may be, because there's a genuine concern that's there, isn't there? Absolutely. That's yeah. great. So we just want to kind of um, round off um, with what we've been talking about today because it's been great, loads of um, interesting points there. So I've just got a couple of things that just to finish off with really. So what's your biggest piece of advice for a business owner or a manager that they can realistically implement to improve mental health and well-being and substance misuse and support with misuse support within their business? Right. Very first thing. First of all, know your people. Right. And the biggest thing is get your policies right. This is where it is going to go wrong. Yeah. And the point here about is recognizing that the issues we've just been talking about affect everybody. It isn't an us and them. And it's really quite interesting when you will get um, some people who will be put on a, um, say, a mental health first aid course. And we ha- we've heard this quite a lot. And immediately people will say, well, actually, that's the last person I would go and talk to on this. So knowing who those resources are is who's going to be the one who can make that contact with that individual is absolutely crucial. If you're not a people person, if people don't respect you or are scared of you, it's going to be very hard to change that role that you play in that company at that time. So you need to be able to match the resource to the individuals and the personalities. Does that make sense? Completely. And that's really from a range of everybody from the top of the company all the way down. All the way through. You know, it's not just, it doesn't just target anybody, you know, it targets anybody. It's kind of, you know, it's it's not exclusive really, is it? Anybody can be affected by these issues that we've been talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be your biggest piece of advice for any individuals who are worried about issues, either personally or somebody that they know about? Right. The very first thing is talk to people. Don't keep it to yourself. Now that can be anybody. If you're, if you've got uh, health and well-being champions in the workplace, you could talk to them. Talk to a manager if you've got a good enough relationship. Talk to friends, family, uh, anybody who you feel you can trust. And if you, if you're really isolated and you feel you can't talk to anybody about it because the issues might be, you might be having intrusive thoughts that you might be embarrassed about, or or something that you'd feel you can't burden other people with. That's the time to get professional help. Okay. And that the starting point should always be your GP. If your company's got a program or works with people like us, ask us to be, be referred to us. Yeah. Or just, be, you know, pick up the phone, this sort of thing, depending if you've got an EAB program. But the point is don't ignore it. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the points I did want to touch on before there was really about the, the services that you provide as, as the, um, as the counselling element of it. And yeah. That's certainly something that we've used in many companies time and time and time yeah. again, um, would have had so much success out of it. I think yeah. of people again, back to changing people's lives, saving people's lives and changing people's lives. And I think that's such an important element. And I think your team that do that can make an impact because they've been there and done it, haven't they? Yeah. You know, and I, and I think one of our situations was, 
one of the the guys who turned up was an alcoholic, and I think uh, your guy had, had yeah. said actually, you know, that this particular guy had not drank that morning before he got there. His dad had brought him, and actually, your guy had to take him to get some drinks so they could have yeah. a conversation, be able to start a, a program to be able to do it. And kind of, he's he, another one of his success stories. Kind of, nine, nine months later, he was. You know, back at work, he was able to buy a car. He wasn't drinking anymore. He started returning back into the workplace. He was able to see his children again. And that all started from that kind of that counselling yeah. service meeting um, with and, your guys. And it is. I mean, what we do is, to be honest, quite specialist. It's a specialist area. Very well, specialist. Yeah. Isn't it? Not quite very. <laughs> and, and I think it's all... Uh, help is only useful if it's helpful, yeah. if that makes sense. So, but if people are prepared to be helped, and absolutely, people have to want to want to be helped, but the vast majority do, and even if they're slightly resistant to it, or embarrassed by it, or uh, angry about it, we do a lot of anger. Part of it is about doing what's right for that individual at that time. Now, if you speak to many, I mean, if you had said to many, you know, lots of GPs and to other health professionals that we've we've worked with and delivered training for over the years and things, you would say, yeah, actually, we had a client there who was struggling. You could see he was going into um, withdrawal. And then so we took him straight to the shop and he bought four cans of beer and we got him to drink them straight away. Now, that sounds totally counterintuitive, but the reality here is if he'd gone into complete withdrawal, there's a real risk of a medical risk of fits and seizures like that. That'll kill people, yeah. you know. So when people go into that stage, it's about understanding the what you're really dealing with. And we've one of our little mantras is that if you know what you're dealing with, you can deal with anything. Yeah. And but and that's the point, but it's about having that questioning mind to think that the therapist, and this is a, a thing for, you know, part of our mission is about improving standards within sort of the therapeutic community, if that makes sense as well. It's about not just seeing the little bit that you do, because actually people would say, oh, well, no, we wouldn't deal with that. You need to be referred to the alcohol service. And for your mental health, you need to go to somewhere else, for example. Well, Actually, you're dealing with one person. There's no point. You can't bounce people around. And that's one of the major reasons, if you look at sort of treatment systems for addiction, for example, why it doesn't work. It's because people are bounced around different services. Um, there was a, the NTA, the National Treatment Agency, before it was shut down, did a study. I think this was about going about 15 years ago. And on average, when people were entering a treatment system, they might have to deal with up to 17 different workers while you're trying to come off heroin, for example. So you're not forming any bond with you're anyone. You're not going to get the, yeah, anywhere. The engagement. Right? And if anyone, my hat really, I'd really take my hat off to people who genuinely stop using and then get into recovery. Because in many ways, as people have said to us constantly, they say, I'm in recovery despite what was offered, not because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the point here is it's about understanding what people really need. So in the vast majority of cases, really, the starting point is the GP. The GP is responsible for your care coordination. And actually, if you're not getting what you need from your GP, you then need to flag it. And it, it, but you, the one piece of advice I would get uh, give to people who might be struggling is if you don't get what you need, you have to go back. You don't just accept it. Yeah, I think that's really important, isn't it? So where can listeners find out more about you and Recovery for Life? Well, if we haven't put everybody off from this morning. <laughs> like that. So we, um, so I'm John David. You can contact me via LinkedIn if you want to on that. So we're based in Gateshead, but we're National Service. Um, our website is www.recovery4life.co.uk. And uh, the numbers on the websites, et cetera, but just give a, sh a shout. And we're, we're also very happy just to advise companies, even if you're not going to necessarily work with us, because we might not be the right provider for you. But we're always happy to point people in the right direction. And always very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> So, well, thank you very much for listening to the Real World HR podcast and thank you very much for John joining us here today as well. You can find out more information about the things that we've discussed on this episode in the show notes. Please do make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future podcasts too. Real World HR, putting the human back into HR.